Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We've got a lot of great articles for you today. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Well, according to SciTech Daily, honeybees use animal dung to fend off giant murder hornets. Oh. That's enterprising. Wow. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, I, admittedly, animal dung would keep me away from the bees, I guess. <laughs> well, what makes this pretty special is that this finding is also the first to document the use of tools by honeybees. It's kind of sad that it took something like murder hornets to spur (laughs) this kind of evolutionary innovation. But, you know, if anything's going to make you uh, resort to tool use, it's going to be a murder hornet. I'm just That's right. Well, Mm -hmm. half of our inventions came from, you know, Pentagon and military budgets, too. So it makes sense. Exactly right. And, you know, animal dung, pretty plentiful resource if you're a honeybee. (laughs) The University of, I want to say Guelph, it's G-U-E-L-P-H, so I'm just going to call it U of G going forward, but they've discovered (laughs) honeybees in Vietnam collect and apply spots of animal dung around hive entrances, and they do this to deter the deadly nest raids by an Asian hornet, the Vespa soror whose North American cousins have been dubbed murder hornets. So Mm. technically they're Asian hornets, but here we call them murder hornets, which seems actually the opposite of how we do things in America now. Right. Normally you would think we'd attach a nationality (laughs) to it. I (laughs) mean, yep. The invasive species in North America, it originally came from Asia. Giant hornets are almost as long as a golf tee and pack about seven times as much venom in a single sting as an ordinary honeybee. I mean, it's why we're calling them murder hornets, right? Yeah. The arrival of the venomous insect in North America has raised concerns about human safety, OBS, as well as threats to local honeybees and ecosystems. So they conducted a study with lead author Heather Matilla, who completed her PhD at the U of G in 2006 and now is a biology professor at Wellesley College. The article also has a really cute picture of them kind of pinching together the wings of a honeybee very carefully where they could zoom in on a piece of dung being carried in the honeybee's mouth. So kind of (laughs) cute. These two species are the only hornets that recruit nest mates in organized attacks that can lead to nest breaches. What they do is they raid the nest, they kill the bees, and they carry away larvae and pupae to feed their own developing brood. Super rude, right? Yeah. Yeah, wow. They're baby snatchers. That's unkind. That's that's exactly what they are. Yeah, it's kind of like a Viking raid, really. (laughs) Uh, The researchers found that the honeybees have developed a preemptive defense by collecting animal dung and applying it to hive entrances. But unlike the Asian counterparts, honeybees in Canada lack similar defenses. So this means that North American beekeepers usually have to rely on just destroying hornet nests or hope that climate or other factors will limit the hornet's spread. But if it works, and we know it works, can we put animal dung on honeybee hives to protect them? I mean, I'm sure the honeybees won't appreciate it, but they won't know what's going on. (laughs) I think that might be kind of an inference to take from the study, right? Mm -hmm. They began this project after asking honeybee keepers in Vietnam about all these dark spots at the hive entrances. And during one visit, an experienced beekeeper explained that the substance was buffalo dung. Hmm. So they got some money from the National Geographic Society to do this study. The researchers gathered dung from water buffalo, chickens, pigs, and cows, 
And what they did is they placed it in mounds near an apiary. And by the end of the day, about 150 bees had visited the piles, particularly collecting more odiferous manures mm. of pigs and chickens. So they went for the stinky stuff. But all they had to do was put a pile there and the Canadian bees were like, oh, we get it and took it and used it. I think the study was still in Vietnam. So these were the Vietnamese bees. Oh, okay. But you're right in that like the learnings from this are hopefully something that we can take and fortify the rest of our bee populations worldwide. So the hornets spent less than half as much time at nest entrances with moderate to heavy dung spotting, and hmm. they spent one-tenth as much time chewing at the hive entrances to get at the bees' brood. They were also less likely to launch mass attacks on the more heavily spotted hives. And this wow. is a huge yeah. improvement over what beekeepers in Vietnam normally have to do. They have to, and these are the humans, stand guard and swat away individuals, preventing Ooh. them from escalating their attacks. I know, it's super <laughs> manual. And at first, you know, the researcher was terrified about working near the giant hornets because the hazmat suits typically worn for protection by researchers in Japan were impractical in Vietnamese heat. They're just mm. smothering and too much. So the article just ends with this very memorable quote. I got stung by one and it was the most excruciating sting in my life. Yeah, that sounds, <laughs> I mean, that's good for the Vietnamese honeybee keepers going around risking their own pain to swat I these know. guys away. And not even being able to use the hazmat suits for protection, just hardcore Vietnam. I mean, if they now know that poop can get rid of them, they just can cover themselves as well as the <laughs> entrances. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Like, how far does this go exactly? <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe we let this kind of progress at the insects pace because if we're just covering everything in poop and suddenly the murder hornets develop some kind of like, eh, it doesn't bother us anymore, that's when we know that the proverbial has hit the fan. That's right. right. We don't mm -hmm. we don't want to overdo it and no, speed up their evolution. No. Mm -hmm. I guess I won't cover myself in poop then since you say it's not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure science has a lot to say on why that's not a good idea, <laughs> right, but right. at least you're not a honeybee and don't have to worry about it now. That's true. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. This article comes to us from sfchronicle.com and it's titled Zodiac 340 Cipher Cracked by Code Experts 51 Years After It Was Sent to the SF Chronicle. Wow. Oh my gosh, we finally cracked the Zodiac Killer Code. And mm -hmm. what does Ted Cruz have to say? I was going to say, I'm assuming we now know it's Ted Cruz. Or <laughs> so the solution to what's known as the 340 Cipher, which is one of the most vexing mysteries of the Zodiac Killer's murderous saga, has been found by a code-breaking team from the United States, Australia, and Belgium. So this was All a right, teamwork makes the dream mission. work. Yeah. <laughs> So the cipher was sent in a letter to the Chronicle in November 1969 and has been puzzling authorities and amateur sleuths ever since. And investigators hoped that the Zodiac, who killed five people in the Bay Area in 1968 and 1969, would reveal his name in one of his many ciphers, but there's no such name in the 340. According to the code-breaking expert David Oranchak, the cipher's text includes, I hope you are having lots of fun in trying to catch me. I am not afraid of the gas chamber because it will send me to paradise all the sooner because I now have enough slaves to work for me. Ooh. So, all right. Yeah. Turns out Wait, the serial uh, killer was crazy. Who knew? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we waited all this time to crack the code just to get full details on the killer taunting us. And we still have no idea who this was. Right. Is. Yep. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, so Aranchuk is a 46-year-old web designer who lives in Virginia, and he's been working on the Zodiac's code since 2006. 
This is the second time that a Zodiac cipher has been cracked. The first one, one long cipher sent in pieces to the Chronicle, the San Francisco Examiner, and Vallejo Times-Herald newspapers in 69 was solved by a Salinas school teacher and his wife. It was known as the 408 cipher and said little beyond, I like killing because it is so much fun. So, you know, yeah, kind of a trend. I mean, okay, so we've got multiple different coded ciphers. Has anyone thought about the fact that this is like a Dexter situation? This person probably works for like the FBI? Maybe. I I mean, because they can create all of these different uncrackable ciphers. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. I don't know. It doesn't say anything about that in the article, but I like this theory uh, (laughs) because cryptography, you know, like to create this sort of cryptography that's so difficult. Yeah, you would probably have to have some sort of specialized knowledge or just do something really obscure. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Put it out there on Twitter. Yeah. So um, in most ciphers like the 408, the solution consists mainly of figuring out which letters are represented by certain symbols. And in the 340 cipher, it turns out that the alignment of the words run diagonally down the page and occasionally they get shifted over a column so it's sort of like a geometrical cipher in a way Hmm. aranchuk says that it is a complicated bit of code creation but a basic scheme for it can be found in at least one u.s army code manual from the 1950s so the zodiac killer if not working you know as a crypto expert of some kind probably had some resources and manuals to look at Hmm. So as the team began breaking down the methods used in the cipher, they unpeeled a couple phrases that let them know they were on the right track. The references to Gas Chamber and the TV show seem to refer to Jim Dunbar's AM San Francisco show that aired in October 1969. And on that show, Dunbar and attorney Melvin Belly took a call from somebody who was claiming to be the Zodiac, and he said, I don't want to go to the gas chamber. Mm. So the Zodiac is saying, "Uh, Mm. no, I can't wait to go to the gas chamber. I am not afraid. One of the interesting things about this cipher and the fact that he mentions the Dunbar show, according to Ronchak, is that it forces the minimum date of the cipher's construction. However, former city homicide inspector Gianrico Perucci, who oversaw the Zodiac case for several years before retiring in 2017, said that the new solution probably doesn't advance the investigation much since it's mostly just bragging and it doesn't give you a location, an address, or a riddle, or a job, or anything like that, but it's still good to have it solved. The Zodiac sent two other ciphers to newspapers that are still left to decode, and in at least one of his communications, the killer did say that his name was in one of the ciphers. Oh. Yeah. So Perucci says that that's the one codebreakers have to work on now. We need his name. Yeah. But, yeah. but we don't know which one it's in. He just said it's in one Ugh. of them, so we still have to break all of them. That's yeah. Right. Okay. And speaking of, the name most commonly put forth as the man likely to be the Zodiac is convicted child molester and Navy veteran Arthur Lay Allen of Viejo. Hmm. But he died of a heart attack at 58 in 1992 before police could build enough of a case to charge him. Hmm. Meanwhile, police in all three counties where the Zodiac killed, SF, Solano, and Napa, still receive tips to this day. And it's arguably the most famous unsolved murder case in America. Mm -hmm. So one of the three who solved the 340 cipher, Sam Blake, became interested in this case after seeing Aranchuk's work online. And on Friday, from his home in Melbourne, Australia, he said that the team tested around 650,000 different reading directions through the cipher before coming up with the right combinations. Mm. And they worked together for eight months on the puzzle. So it was just pure brute force on some level, Mm -hmm. just like combing through this thing to figure it out. But even so far from the murder scenes, conquering the science of the puzzle didn't dissuade him from the most basic element of the case, which is the human element. 
And Blake writes, we would like to dedicate our work that culminated in this solution to the victims of the Zodiac Killer, their families and descendants. And we hope that this is a stepping stone towards finding justice for these people. Yeah. Whew. I mean, I'm I'm assuming they don't have any DNA for this guy or it would have just been solved a long time ago. Like, this is just yeah. all they have is the notes, huh? Yeah, I believe so. Well, someone fastidious enough to create all of these different ciphers and codes, one would possibly assume that they would be more careful about yeah. not leaving any kind of evidence, right? Very yeah. true. Well, I'm still holding out hope for Ted Cruz myself. But that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Sentences yeah. rarely said on Damn Interesting Week. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Time will tell. Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. Well, this one comes from The Atlantic. It's called Survival of the Luckiest. It's basically a new-ish theory of evolution, which on the one hand upends everything we thought we knew. And on the other hand is so obvious that when I was reading it, I was like, well, yeah, duh. But (laughs) that's quite the spread. It does have some pretty wide reaching implications. So we start with an extinct species, the so-called blue tigers of the Fujian province in China. Apparently, they were as blue as a normal tiger is orange. They were just these gorgeous animals. They're described in numerous accounts. They definitely existed. Explorers were still finding little tufts of blue fur on the trails as late as the 1950s. Wow. Yeah, but they're gone now, and no one really knows why. They definitely weren't overhunted, as no one ever captured a single one. We don't even have a hide from one. We just have all these accounts of them existing. And there weren't any obvious tiger diseases at the time, nor was their color any better or worse for camouflage than their bright orange cousins, right? The suspicion is that it was just random chance. There clearly weren't that many of them, and something happened that wiped them out that had nothing to do with evolutionary fitness. It just happened to them. Which seems very reasonable, but the idea of a species dying out for no reason rather than some sort of inferior trait isn't really accounted for in evolutionary theory. So in 1968, geneticist Moto Kimura proposed neutral theory, which said actually most of the variation we see in a species is actually luck rather than selective pressures. At the time, it was largely rejected because it was seen as an anti-Darwin attack. Basically, it was Mm. a tool for those who were fighting against teaching evolution in the schools. Even though that's not what Kimura was saying, everybody was just like, no, 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 we're not going to talk about that right now. (laughs) But nowadays, we have computers that can analyze entire genomes and look at the statistical realities of genetic drift. And recent studies have pretty demonstrably shown that Kimura was right. It's not that natural selection isn't a pressure on evolution, because it very much is. It's more like natural selection is a poker player. And sometimes you just don't get dealt a queen, even when you could really Mm. use one. Or sometimes you get a queen, but you're going for, you know, a pair of threes. And so the Mm -hmm. queen is just not useful to you. Which all seems entirely reasonable, but it matters because huge parts of our evolutionary record are based on statistical models of what we think genetic drift looks like. So the article gives the example of a population of 10 birds, where one is green, one is red, and the rest are brown. And if you imagine a tornado suddenly comes through and kills six of the birds completely randomly, nothing to do with color, if the six it happens to kill are all brown... You're suddenly left with a population where red and green have instantly jumped from a 10% prevalence to a 25% prevalence. Mm. And to a scientist looking at the historical record without any knowledge of the random tornado, it would look like red and green must have been a massive evolutionary advantage. And (laughs) so they'll start to make assumptions about what that might mean about the bird's environment or their predator's vision and countless other things. The nice thing is it does all come back to probability. And it's much easier to account for neutral drift 
if you know the size of the population, right? Because for 10 birds, you could easily accidentally lose six and dramatically change the prevalence. But if you have 300 birds, you're not likely to lose all the brown ones at once. You're going to lose some red and green ones in there too. Mm -hmm. So in May of 2020, a team led by Parul Jory at the University of Arizona published a new paper outlining a new statistical framework for figuring out what percentage of genetic drift is neutral versus what is selective. And like any mathematical model, it's very complicated, and the article doesn't even try to explain it. (laughs) But since then, a bunch of researchers from other fields have applied it to their own fields, and it's been successfully used to explain diversity in everything from cryptocurrencies to baby names. So, you know, the most important test of a model is its ability to predict what is coming, and so far it Mm -hmm. seems to be doing pretty well. So anyway, that's it. It's just a, a complete upending of evolutionary theory and uh, makes sense. <laughs> that's no it. Big no big deal. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> By the way, for anybody who does care to do a Google image search for Maltese tiger, be warned, you will see some furry art. Oh, no. Hmm. Ask me how I know. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> well, because at first I was like, oh, sweet, a blue tiger. And I know you just said the fur was found, but maybe I can see a sample of the fur. And nope. 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 <laughs> Well, okay. I, you know, maybe that's another instance of uh, evolution in humans that is going to. Uh, it's, it's a trait that is not providing any benefit, and we should... <laughs> I'm sure it provides some to some. I, I don't want to squick anybody's. That's whatever. right. No judging. <laughs> <laughs> Just link. wasn't expecting that. All right, next link. Yes. Next, next link. link. All right, let's uh, have a little bit of a palate cleanser here from the Entrepreneur's Handbook. Who knew? Thank what? you for the palate cleanser, <laughs> Entrepreneur's <laughs> Handbook. Uh, this article is called An Elderly Mathematician Hacked the Lottery for $26 Million. Ooh. Wow. Right? Um, It was a gentleman named Jerry Selby. He used a simple algebraic solution in part because of how this particular lottery was structured. So it has kind of like a little long-form intro about one morning, his wife walked into the kitchen, he was drawing on a notepad, and she asked, what are you working on? And he looked up and said, I think I've cracked the Michigan State Lottery. She laughed and, you know, didn't think much of it. She finished her coffee and he just uh, sat with his $26 million secret. So looking back on this man's life, he was the perfect candidate to spot a hole in the system. So he had a humble life, but he had a master's in mathematics and from a young age could solve problems that a lot of adults struggled with. The article notes there is great irony in his future heist. They never drank, they never smoked, did drugs or gambled. Caffeine was their only vice. I have no idea why they would editorialize in this way. Yeah, it's not a heist. This was totally legal. And this is the entrepreneur's handbook going into it. So whatever. Just thought I'd call that out. Um, (laughs) He took an unconventional path after college. He worked in sales. He did factories. He worked in offices. But then he got really tired of working for the man. He had six (laughs) kids and a wife to provide for. So for whatever reason, they opened a convenience store in Everett. Michigan. (laughs) And it didn't seem like he was going to be a multimillionaire coming this way. But they did do better than most stores. And in part, this is because he analyzed prices from suppliers. He would identify margins, resell supplies to small retailers for a profit. He had graphs and analytics on the earnings per square foot of his store. So Mm. he already knew how to apply math to just maximize everything, even with his convenience store. 
They eventually bought and owned one of the only lottery machines in Everett County. People would stream in from miles away to chase the impossible dream, but they themselves had never spent a dollar on lottery tickets. His bond with numbers and math made it an obvious decision. He would study the figures on the back of the tickets and he would marvel at people's willingness to play. Mm-hmm. But the arrival of a special game in 2003 changed everything. Oh. There was a, <laughs> this game was called Windfall, and the premise was simple. You pick six numbers between 1 and 49. If you guessed two, three, four, or five numbers, you would get a prize in increasing amounts. And if you guessed six, you would win the $2 million minimum. Hmm. Now, here's where it gets a little dicey. If nobody won, the lottery purse would go up each week. And after six weeks, or when the jackpot hit the $5 million cap, they did what's called a roll-down. And a roll-down occurs when winnings are spread downwards to lower-tier winners at the five, four, and three-level matches. Oh. That's nice. So you've got some nice parameters. Anyone who's a math geek is probably like, okay, all right, I can do a haiku within all this. But here's where (laughs) the state lottery made a really terrible mistake. They listed the odds of winning that was associated with each combination of numbers. So the math explanation could fill an article itself, but the Uh short version, Jerry studied those winning odds and the timing of the roll downs, and he realized that statistically, a single $1 lottery ticket was worth more than $1 in those final weeks. Mm -hmm. And so put together a plan. He knew he would have to bet big to create a justifiable margin. Mm -hmm. In his first attempt, He bought $2,000 in tickets, which was an uncomfortably large sum for a man who had never gambled, and he ended up losing $50. So he reckoned this was bad luck within the margin of error and realized he was going to have to wager more. So three months later, the next rolldown was announced. He buys a full $8,000 in tickets, and his winnings totaled $15,700, which netted him a $7,700 profit. Wow. Now, the game required you to buy the tickets in person. So when a roll down was coming, he and his wife would split up into two cars and hit countless convenience stores across the state. Now, the government didn't <laughs> notice anything strange. And the Selbys continued this mission for a full decade without oh, wow. the state noticing. <laughs> so this it wasn't like he won a 26 million jackpot. It was like he figured out how to win a little bit and just uh-huh. kept winning a little bit for a decade. Yeah, I mean, he was running a convenience store by maximizing a spread of margin over reselling. So he knew how to kind of get these little wins and have them add up. But eventually, a group of students at MIT noticed a flaw in the math as well and started buying up tickets. And finally, a news story broke the lid open on the scheme and the local lottery officials shut down the game. Those dang college (laughs) kids, they ruin everything. It's 21 all over again. But by by the time this had happened, Jerry had won more than $26 million from the state lottery. And after deducting for expenses, which when you think about them having to travel all around and, you know, do all that stuff, they took in more than $8 million in profit. So the math worked out. There were a lot of expenses. It was an expensive scheme. But to get $8 million, totally worth it. Oh, yeah. 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 No law was ever broken. A man with a mathematical curiosity spotted a hole and stepped through it. They were in their 70s at the end of this run. Money hasn't changed them at all. All they've done is renovate their house and pay for their 14 
15 grandchildren's college funds. Wow. So the lesson here, if you are a kid or anybody learning math and you're like, I'm never going to have to use this in real life. Well, you may just get your chance if you can pay attention to the state lottery, giving you more information than you should probably have access to. And if you do find a loophole, keep it to yourself. Just quietly (laughs) make money. Don't go out there and be like, I'm buying Don't tell any college kids about it. Yeah. Yeah. No. Don't tell the kids. Don't tell the journalists. Just keep your head down. Renovate your house. Pay for college funds because I'm sure that's where the eight million probably had to. You know, college is expensive. Y'all. Oh yeah, fourteen mm-hmm. grandkids. Yeah. That took a big chunk of it. <laughs> the thing I really like about this story is that you know, at first you think it's going to be like some Ocean's twenty six level heist <laughs> deal where like they figure out a flaw and in one fell swoop they win the lottery, right? Uh-huh. But no, it's like a very patient, calculated game of noticing edges in mathematical formulas Mm -hmm. and tweaking that and using that to guarantee a return over, you know, a very long time span, which is like much more realistic. And that's how it is done in real life. Yeah. In in real life. Yeah. 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 So, you know, this also has a bit of uh, scheming to it, which makes it fun. But I appreciate that (laughs) it is a very disciplined scheming. Absolutely. And you know why he was able to, right? It's because he never drank or smoked. I mean, that's that's why he could pull it off. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. This article comes to us from HakaiMagazine.com and it's titled The Military Wants to Hide Covert Messages in Marine Mammal Sounds. Yes, please. Not where I thought that was going. All right. Yeah, I know, right? That's why I paused (laughs) dramatically. (laughs) Uh, So... Chinese researchers have recently published a series of studies describing how to disguise underwater communications as artificial dolphin clicks and killer whale songs, potentially allowing stealthy submarines or underwater drones to cryptically pass covert military communications between each other or a home base. So they're not literally getting dolphins <laughs> or whales to speak Recruiting code. them, right. Yeah, because that's what I thought when yeah. I first encountered this article. But still, you know, cool as well, I guess. So mimicking marine mammal sounds to disguise military communication is a decades-old idea that has resurfaced. The U.S. military's Project Combo tested using recordings of whale and dolphin songs as the basis for secret code that might go unnoticed by enemy eavesdroppers. And, you know, you'll recall that during the Cold War era, that's where they had all these weird ideas about everything. It was a very interesting time. Uh, (laughs) But the Chinese researchers' efforts seem to have gone a step beyond by using modern technology to create artificial whale and dolphin sounds from scratch rather than relying on pre-existing recordings. Caitlin Fraser, who is an oceanographer and data scientist at the University of California, San Diego, says there have clearly been many recent advances in artificial signal synthesis. But the technology is likely to run up against the same limitations that prior projects have encountered, including limits on how far away such sounds can be detected, mm-hmm. unwanted distortion of the signal caused by changing temperatures or other environmental factors that affect the bending and bouncing of sound waves and interference from other ocean noises. Well, and you never know what you might actually be saying to the dolphins and whales. Like, they, <laughs> you could start a revolution yeah. underwater without even knowing it. Your exactly. mother smelt of elderberries. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So despite all these challenges, uh, sound is the ideal form of long-distance communication in the ocean's depths, which limit efficient transmission of light and radio waves. 
1973, the Navy successfully carried out tests between stationary underwater speakers and receivers at distances of up to 32 kilometers and depths of 75 meters, which is, you know, pretty deep and pretty far. The following year, the submarine USS Dolphin used the technique to swap messages with the surface ship, so this has actually been happening in practice. But the sensing and computing technology of the time faced limits in detecting the whale sounds without distortion, not to mention creating artificial whale sounds from scratch or decoding more complex meanings within artificially generated signals, which were totally, you know, out of the question at the time. This meant that Project Combo's experiments relied on pre-recorded pilot whale sounds to build a predetermined codebook with simple messages, rather than trying to synthesize customized messages on the fly. And for their recordings, the naval settled on pilot whale sounds because of their efficient underwater transmission ranges, but also because the whale's global presence meant that they could potentially send messages around the world without arousing suspicion. Because, mm. you know, if you send like a, I don't know where whales live, the different types of whales, but right. <laughs> the wrong whale showing up in the wrong ocean uh, is kind of a dead giveaway there. So... Modern advances in sensors and computing have allowed Chinese researchers at Harbin Engineering University and Tianjin University to potentially overcome some of these prior limitations. Roy Diamond, an electrical and computer engineer at the University of Haifa in Israel, who previously designed a covert underwater communication system for a defense technology company, says, The idea is that you take the signal that the animal is making and you're using it as your baseline signal. From there, transforming whale and dolphin sounds into a code that carries complex meaning for humans isn't easy. Many whales produce sounds at lower frequencies where the bandwidth available for constructing meaningful messages is limited. Mm -hmm. But sperm whales actually communicate using clicks that can have a wider bandwidth, but their short duration means that the transmission energy and mm -hmm. therefore the possible distance of communication is limited. So mm -hmm. there's a bunch of factors in, you know, developing a convincing fake underwater mammal sound. Right, that'll be uh, of any use to you, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So the dolphin family that includes killer whales and pilot whales transmit at higher frequencies, which may be more suitable for encoding messages, but Diamond and other experts suggest that any such effort is likely to result in inefficient communications only suited for sending simple textile messages which I kind of had a chuckle at thinking of people just being like, what you doing? <laughs> like, UID. The, the dolphin equivalent of you up? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, you know, you're not going to be transmitting books to one another. You could say go or I'm here or fairly simple stuff like that. But if you're trying to coordinate the movements of vessels or anything like that, it'd mm -hmm. be much less clear. Mm -hmm. So there's also one potential problem here. No one knows how this kind of covert communication system, whether it's echolocation or vocalizations, could affect actual marine mammals. Would mm -hmm. they be confused? <laughs> Previous experiments suggest whales and dolphins can quickly figure out when the sound being played is a recording or otherwise artificial, but they might still change their behavior in response by increasing and changing their own vocalizations. Mm -hmm. And dolphins are actually known to whistle back in response to signals in their whistle frequency band, and we have known them to actually jam those frequencies with intense whistling in response to a stimulus <laughs> and yeah so dolphins including pilot whales are generally quite curious so it's likely that they'd be intrigued by and respond to these signals or we have said something so offensive to them that That's they're right. just all like it's a cacophony of outrage like how dare you yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
So that could mean negative impacts for whales or dolphins if their sudden flurry of communication in response to artificial noise gives away their own location to predators and prey. Artificial signals could also cause them to abandon their current plans and move away from the noise. Mm. And at the very least, the system could just distract the animals and waste their time by forcing them to figuring out what's going on, Mm -hmm. which is very considerate of this article and the researchers involved. Well, I mean, the whole premise of this is basically hijacking their own communication for our Mm -hmm. needs. So like the basic common courtesy of like, (laughs) I don't know. I'm not that impressed. I've heard those AI generated human voices yet but they're very creepy especially if they're like saying nonsense so i i can totally see it yeah um, the, the uncanny valley of dolphin speaking it's like yeah <laughs> so in the u.s if we're to use such a technique there'd have to be experimental proof that the challenge posed was not overwhelming for any other species in the area where you're planning on using it Laws such as the Marine Mammal Protection Act of 1972 have given rise to regulatory efforts aimed at controlling the amount of noise humans generate in the oceans, and military organizations such as NATO have standards for underwater sounds. But a military could still conduct such experiments secretly without notifying anyone, and as Diamond points out, just because you can't read about it anymore doesn't mean they don't do it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So if dolphins suddenly start acting real weird, could be Our the fault? Chinese, could yeah. be us, could be anybody, really. So um, Yeah, I mean, I'm cynical because, you know, on the one hand, they're like, oh, we don't want to disrupt the dolphins. But also, if you disrupt the dolphins and the whales and they leave or they change their behavior, that just means your code is no longer good. Mm-hmm. So it still feels very self-serving. I don't know if they care that totally. much. Yeah. Or this could open up a new, like, genre of music where we have, like, collaborations <laughs> dropping with... With our marine mammal friends and <laughs> right. you know i mean like dolphin rap i would listen to that feature that's right yeah that's right. <laughs> yeah it's flipper <laughs> featuring pitbull right like <laughs> <laughs> perfect yeah. uh next link next, next, next link. link all right well i'm gonna apologize in advance you guys are not gonna like this article uh it is all yeah right. it is it is really awful and that is exactly why i chose it it's from Ars Technica. The title really says it all. Here's what happens when a bee stings you directly in your eyeball. No! Yep, yep. <laughs> this, is a, this is a medical issue that really happens. It's rare, but it does happen. The December issue of the New England Journal of Medicine reports the story of a 22-year-old man in Mangalore, India, who arrived at the Kasturba Medical College emergency room one hour after being stung in the left eye by a bee. As would be expected, he was suffering from redness, pain, and most distressingly, severely decreased vision in that eye. Visual acuity in his right eye was 20-20, but his left eye could only see rough hand movements right in front of his face. The stinger had unfortunately gone right through the cornea in the center of his eye, and it was still there. So, I mean, you, you can't the, scrape that out with a credit card or anything, right? That's right. That's right. That's, okay. that's a little more delicate. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Continue. <laughs> oh, it gets worse. Uh, as if the description weren't enough. Yes, there are pictures. <laughs> nope. Oh. Nope. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, they're really not that bad. It's just an extreme close-up of a really red, irritated eye with a sort of blurry white spot that they had to point out with a red arrow on the picture because otherwise you might think it was, you know, dirt on the camera lens or something. It's really not very obvious. Uh, (laughs) Corneal bee stings are rare, but they have been documented in the medical literature before, so the risks are pretty well known. First, the physical damage to the cornea can result in corneal decompensation or cloudiness, 
which can occur also with other types of eye injuries. It may heal over time, or in the worst cases, it can become permanent and require a corneal transplant. But that is still something that modern medicine can do, should it come to that. Second, however, the venom injected into the eye will cause some swelling, and that can lead to secondary glaucoma, which is where the fluid pressure inside the eyeball increases too much and puts pressure on the optic nerve. And that can lead to permanent damage to the nerve. So treating secondary glaucoma involves usually some kind of effort to reduce the swelling, either with medication or, in the most extreme cases, surgery to drain the excess fluid. (laughs) (laughs) Fortunately, the young man in question did not seem to have too much pressure behind his eye at that point, and the doctors were confident that it would go down over time. Unfortunately, patients generally need to stay awake for any kind of eye procedure. Because the eyes will roll back when you go under general anesthesia and they can't be worked on. So, of course, they gave him a local anesthetic, but he had to stay awake while they fixed him up. So (laughs) after the anesthetic eye drops, he was given antibiotic eye drops and the stinger was gently removed. They do not mention credit cards, but (laughs) did they give him a Valium? Like when I had my LASIK surgery, I had to, you know, be awake for it, I guess, for the same reasons. But they definitely gave me some like happy, don't worry type of pill to be like, hey, we're going to be operating on your eye. I don't know. I mean, it's India. They didn't mention anything like that. (laughs) I think maybe they just said, suck it up and lay down and hold still. But they, but it was pain-free, at least. They did give him the anesthetic. They thoroughly washed the space underneath the cornea so that any lingering venom would get out of there. And then the puncture site was sewn up with corneal sutures, which mm. makes sense. But I had never thought about the fact that you can get stitches in your eye. Like, that that's a thing they Ugh. can do. It's not normal stitches, obviously. They're very, very, very fine. They dissolve on their own. You don't usually have to remove them. And it's exactly what they do when they give you, for example, a corneal transplant. They had some Mm -hmm. awful pictures that I went and looked up because at this point I was just going down a rabbit hole. (laughs) And uh, They actually look kind of cool because like any kind of sutures, they're very geometric and precise. And so it's Uh like a normal eye, but then it's got these cool little lines going. I don't know. (laughs) I found it interesting, but I'm not recommending it before lunch at any rate. Yeah, I'm learning a lot more about your own tolerance for squeak versus mine. (laughs) (laughs) And then, believe it or not, they sent him home. He was given a two-week course of topical steroids, some more antibiotics, and a cycloplegic medication, which paralyzed the ciliary muscle of his eye and thus prevented the lens from instinctively trying to focus on things in tandem with his other eye, because that's just what the eyes do. They work together. So Mm -hmm. they prevented that by just numbing the crap out of it and keeping his eye loose. And the good news is, at a follow-up three months later, his cornea was healed, and the vision in his left eye was only reduced to 2040. Which, you know, that's that's legal to drive in the U.S., so not too bad. He recovered about as well as anyone could have from such a horrific, terrible experience. They really sent him home, and they were just like, ah, just blink it off. Yeah, they're like, you're good. (laughs) (laughs) We got the stinger out. What more do you want, man? Like, (laughs) (laughs) At least it was a honeybee sting and not a murder hornet sting, because I don't even want to begin to think about, like... And then we're all going to be walking around with dung in our eyes just to protect ourselves. It's bad. It's a bad idea. It's the latest trend in cosmetics healthcare. Ooh, that's true. A nice little smoky eyeshadow. That'd be all right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to include what was electricity up to before we discovered it? Hackers spied on U.S. Treasury emails for a foreign government. And the benefits of embracing deep time in a year like 2020. 
So all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. We will be off next week for the holidays. We hope everybody has a safe, socially distanced, but full of joy holiday. And if you would like to put us on your humble holiday gift list, you can go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.